Death is a terrible reality in our broken world. There is a website on the net called Worldometer. And you can watch on that webpage all of these different statistics being updated in real time on your screen in front of you. And one of the statistics is the number of deaths today. And as you watch, you see the numbers click over faster than one per second as somewhere, someone in the world dies. I found myself captured by the ever-increasing number and filled with sadness. 62,537, 62,538, 39, 40, 41, 42... You know, one of the most moving moments in the life of Jesus is him weeping before the tomb of his dead friend, Lazarus. See, death is a robber. Death is a mocker. The reality of death robs any meaning we might try to find in life. It even mocks our attempts to find meaning. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, the writer of the book Ecclesiastes, a fellow called the teacher... He expresses it all like this. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Meaningless. Hopeless. That's the consequences of death. That's why there's such fear of death. That's why there's such avoidance of even talking about death, especially our own death. And yet, of course, for us who are Christian, we know there's something more to be said, isn't there? Something profoundly important that needs to be added to everything I've said so far. For not long after Jesus wept before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, to the astonishment of the watching crowd, He called the dead man out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And he came. And suddenly the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Suddenly those words took on great potency and great urgency. And we know from the Bible that Jesus came to free those who all their life were held in slavery by their fear of death. We know from the Bible that as Christians, when a Christian dies, we need not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. See, although death remains a reality in our world for the time being, there is a greater truth for us to cling to, a greater reality, and that is resurrection. Because with that truth comes hope and meaning. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is such a great part of the scripture for us to find ourselves in and to spend some time in together. We're going to look at it tonight and again next Sunday. And in it, the Lord God, through his apostle Paul, speaks to us of resurrection and hope and meaning. So make sure you've got it open, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Tonight we're looking at verses 1 to 34. I'm going to pray and then John is going to come and read it for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truth of resurrection. Father, we thank you that death does not have the final say. 
And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to grapple with these truths tonight. Help us to understand fully, Father, the wonder of our hope that someone can have when they belong to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John is reading from verses 1 to 34. Well, you might have wondered perhaps what the, what the apostles preached in the first century as they were planting and establishing churches all over the Roman Empire. Paul actually gives us the answer in a nutshell there at the beginning of chapter 15. He reminds the Corinthian church of the message he proclaimed to them when he was among them. You can see it in verse 3. For, I, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There, if you like, is like the, the movie trailer version of the gospel proclaimed by Paul and believed by the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And this was not a message invented by Paul. In verse 3, he tells us that he received it. In fact, it was revealed to him by revelation from Christ Jesus himself. And Paul was set apart as a channel, as a bearer of this precious message. And he passed it on as of first importance, he tells us. There is nothing more important than this message that he and the other apostles proclaimed. And what a message it is. It's the same message that has been passed on down through the ages, even to us. Christ died for our sins. The Son of God, the King of Kings, the Innocent One, the One who is life, He died for our sins. He bore the condemnation, the judgment, the punishment that should rightfully fall on us. The sins were ours. They weren't his. He was sinless. We are sinful. And yet, just as God had promised beforehand through the scriptures, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Christ died for our sins. We can say it so simply, can't we? So easily, but it's breathtaking. Every word matters. Christ died for our sins. He was buried placed in the tomb belonging to the man Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb was sealed with a stone and two guards. But after three days, he was raised again according to the Scriptures. God had already declared in the Scriptures that he would not abandon his Christ to the grave. He wouldn't let his Holy One see decay. And so when the women arrived at the tomb on that very first Easter Sunday, they found the stone rolled away. Only the grave clothes remained inside and a messenger telling them that Jesus was risen. The one who declared himself to be the resurrection and the life himself was resurrected 
a bodily resurrection. And none of it was done in a corner, of course. Paul goes on in verse 5 to remind us of that. The risen Jesus, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He talked with them. He ate with them. He showed them his scars. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them were still alive as Paul wrote this letter. They could back it all up. He appeared to James. He appeared to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared even to Paul himself, who was then, of course, called Saul, who was a persecutor of the Christian church, who hated Jesus and hated all who bore his name but who was confronted by the risen Jesus himself. Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What a day for Saul, whom we now know as Paul. Confronted, converted, and commissioned to take the message of the gospel to the nations. This message... That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day was raised. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the message by which a person can be saved. It's a simple message, but it is a profoundly important and powerful message. That message bears the power of God himself to bring people out from under his condemnation and into his forgiving and loving arms. Now I know that there are people here tonight in our evening church gathering who have not yet believed that message. And I'm glad you're here because you've heard the message. It's a message worth hearing. But of course you've got to do more than hear it. You've got to believe it. You've got to commit to it. You've got to admit that it was your sins that Jesus died for. You've got to take God at his word that only through trusting in the death of Jesus can things be fixed between you and God. You've got to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That Jesus is the king with all authority. The one who rightfully can direct every little bit of your life from this point onwards. You've got to hold firmly to this message to do that is to be saved to give up trying to do it on your own and to let Jesus bear the burden is to be saved you could do it right now where, where you're sitting as I'm speaking it's a simple message but it's a profoundly important and powerful message it's a message that demands the response of trust and belief and commitment. Paul preached that message, this message, to the Corinthians. And they received it, Paul said. They took their stand on it. They believed it. And that was the right response. And so maybe our question is, well, if they believed the message, why does Paul have to remind them of it all over again in this letter? Why is he repeating it again? Well, the clue, I think, is back in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. See, the Corinthians needed to hold firmly to this message. They needed to continue to take their stand on this message. And that's really what drives Paul in this chapter. For although, you see, they had believed 
the message of the gospel, at the time that Paul wrote, they were falling prey to an error that was actually taking them away from the gospel. It was an error that was undermining the very gospel that Paul had preached to them. And Paul points out the error in verse 12. See if you can spot it. Verse 12. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See the error that's infecting the Corinthian church? At least some of the Corinthians were saying that there's no future resurrection of believers. That's actually a bit of a strange error to get our heads around. Because in our day... Now, we're more used to people making an error concerning Jesus' resurrection. You know, it's the sort of religious story our newspapers love. Bishop declares Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's the error we're used to hearing all the time, sadly. But for the Corinthians, it's actually the connection between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of believers. That was where they were getting it wrong. Exactly what their error was is harder to figure out. You certainly get the sense from the rest of the letter that they were really proud of their spiritual status. They figured that they had well and truly already arrived spiritually. In fact, it would seem from the rest of the letter that they figured there was nothing much left for them to gain in the future. So maybe, in some way, maybe they thought they had already been resurrected. It's interesting, but Paul refers to that very error in another of his letters, in 2 Timothy, in chapter 2 if you're interested. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he warns Timothy of the danger of a false teaching that, that said that the resurrection had already taken place. Maybe that's the error in Corinth too. But in one sense, you know, it really doesn't matter too much for us, for us here tonight precisely what the error was. What matters is Paul's response to the error. Because in response, he actually helps them and us to understand the significance of Christ's resurrection for us who belong to him. It's, this, it's significance firstly in the here and now, which is point two on your outline. And secondly, it's the significance for the future, there and then if you like, which is point three on your outline. So point two, and let's have a look at verse 13. Let me read If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. To help us appreciate what Paul's going to be teaching here, the first thing we need to do is make sure we follow his logic. What he's doing is, he is starting with the false teaching, and he is unpacking its consequences for the Corinthians. He wants them to understand how serious an error it is, by exploring the consequences of believing it. And it's almost like a chain of dominoes falling over. In verse 13 there he says, look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if that's the first domino you knock over, then the second domino to fall is that, well, not even Christ has been raised. And once that domino falls, well, that domino actually knocks down a whole lot of other dominoes at the same time. Paul mentions two of them there in verse 14. See if you can spot them. He says the apostles' preaching is useless, and so is the Corinthians' faith. Two dominoes knocked over. But they're not the only ones to fall. If you glance through verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, you'll notice that Paul mentions a few more. Verse 15, 
if Christ didn't raise, wasn't raised, verse 15, the apostles turned out to be false witnesses, liars, domino falls. Verse 17, the other domino to fall, Christian faith is futile and believers would still be in their sins. Verse 18, Christian believers who have died would actually be lost. See what the apostle is doing? He's spelling out for the Corinthians how much is at stake if you take away the resurrection of Christ. In fact, if you take away the resurrection of Christ, you, you lose everything of value, is what he says. That's how significant the resurrection of Christ is. But of course, Paul's whole point is there is resurrection of the dead. Christ has been raised, and so these benefits that he mentions are most certainly ours. And I want us to think about each of them in turn. I'm actually going to rearrange the order that Paul deals with them, but your outline should help you follow where we're going. The first impact of the resurrection of the dead I want us to notice is that of the witness of the apostles. In verse 15, Paul says, look, if Christ has not been raised, well then Paul and the other apostles are found to be liars about God. Because as he's already reminded us, the center of their preaching was the resurrection. But of course, as we know, Christ has been raised. And so therefore we can say that the apostles' testimony is in fact true. Now, I know truth, of course, is under attack in our world, particularly what we might call spiritual truth. And people are suspicious of any level of certainty when it comes to spiritual matters. But for Paul, you see, the resurrection cuts through all of that with piercing clarity. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, he says, is an historical reality. And that historical reality signals that the testimony of Paul and the other apostles is true. Christ is risen. And so their testimony about God that we find in their letters and their preaching can be trusted, can be heeded. It's true, which of course has great significance for gospel believing. Verse 14, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless. And so he says, is your faith. But switch it around. Christ has been raised. And so therefore, faith in Jesus, it's not futile. It's not useless. In fact, it's entirely meaningful. Faith in Jesus is well-founded indeed. See, Jesus promised that he would lay down his life to secure the forgiveness of his people's sins. And he promised that he would take his life back up again so as to secure life and life to the full for his people. And he did. And he has. See, faith is not a religious thing. Every human person has faith in something or, or, or other in all sorts of areas of life. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is not, do you believe? The question is, where does your faith rest? In whom have you believed? You see, as a Christian, my faith, my belief rests in Jesus to forgive my sin and to reconnect me to God and to, to secure for me life everlasting. That is a massive thing to entrust to anyone or anything when you think, I've entrusted to Jesus my entire forever future. Nothing more massive than that. So is it a confident trust? Is it a sensible belief? Yes. How can I be confident? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. 
the historically testable reality that at a real moment in time, in a real place, a real man, Jesus, really rose from the dead. That's the basis of our faith. And it is a strong foundation, let me tell you. Now, I know the world will mock our faith and our faith will be misrepresented and misunderstood and it'll seem futile and it will seem quaint and curious and silly. But the resurrection of Jesus overturns all of that. Brothers and sisters, if through the gospel you trust in Jesus, that is a reasonable, sensible meaningful response you don't have to switch off your brain to make that response you need to switch it on for christ has been raised he really has and because he has you see we are free from our sin verse 17 and if christ has not been raised paul says well your faith is futile you are still in your sins but switch it around paul's point christ has been raised And so our faith is not futile and we are no longer in our sins. That is a great truth. We often connect Jesus' death with the forgiveness of our sins and that's true. But look, if Jesus had remained dead, our sins wouldn't have been forgiven. There'd be no atonement, no justification, no conquering of death if Jesus had remained dead. It's his resurrection that secures our sonship, our adoption. It's in his resurrection that Jesus conquered death, the wages of sin for us. It's in his resurrection, it's through his resurrection that Jesus allows us to experience new life in him. It's the resurrected Jesus that that delivered the new life of the Spirit. The Spirit of life who sets us free from sin and death, liberates us to serve Jesus and to please him. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus that we can now live by the Spirit and no longer gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Brothers and sisters, grab this. If you belong to Jesus, you're no longer in your sins because Christ is risen. He's risen. Is that exciting? You look a bit stunned. Is it exciting? There's even more in these verses of the impact of the resurrection of Jesus in the here and now. Paul says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, our gospel preaching, he says, is useless. But of course, Christ has been raised. And so therefore, gospel preaching is not useless, it's useful. And I reckon that's a truth we need to cling to as well. Because you know what? So often gospel preaching... So often telling people, proclaiming the the message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day. So often that message seems in vain, seems weak. There's often so little response. We think about the lives of our friends and our colleagues and our neighbours and our family members. We think about their struggles, their joys, their questions, their aspirations. And you know what? Sometimes it's just really easy to lose confidence in the gospel as the message they most desperately need to hear. We sort of begin to doubt its relevance to their lives. We doubt its authority. We doubt its power to attract them and to save them. And then we look at our world and the depth of the need in our world. Poverty and war and disease and injustice and mistreatment and disaster. 
And we begin to ask, is the gospel really what the world most desperately needs to hear? It can seem futile. It can seem meaningless. And often as the bearers of that gospel, as the messengers, we shrink back. We stay silent. We need to remember that the resurrection of Christ Jesus trumpets with resounding clarity the power of the gospel and the usefulness of gospel preaching. That Jesus rose from the dead never to die again means that your neighbor struggling as a single parent, your neighbor needs the gospel more than anything else. Your boss, wealthy and self-satisfied, needs the gospel more than anything else. People dying in the Sudan need the gospel more than anything else. And we need to be the ones who proclaim it, who share it, who speak it, who bring it. How do we know? Because we know that Christ rose from the dead. Will there be setbacks and rejection and suffering as we, as we try and proclaim the gospel? Of course. The world will hate us just as it hated Jesus. But Jesus overcame the world. He's risen. And our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. How do we know? Because Christ rose from the dead. And that's why too we can be people who even grieve in hope, Paul says. Verse 18, Paul says, it, says that, look, if Christ has not been raised, then all those who die belonging to him are lost. But he has been risen. And so therefore we know that when a believer dies, they are not lost. In fact, they are with Christ in fellowship with him. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus that funerals of Christian people are filled with hopeful grief. Grief because death is still a robber. Hope because death is not the end. Christians don't grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. Because Jesus is risen. We have hope that extends far beyond this life. We have hope that extends into the far reaches of eternity. We're not bound by what happens in the here and now. We look with hope and confidence to a future day. Because Jesus is risen. And that's where Paul turns next. From the here and now to the future. Point three on your outline and verse 20. Let me read. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That last phrase is a beauty, I reckon. Paul says, in Christ all will be made alive. Paul's speaking about that great day still to come. That, that, that day that some of the Corinthians were saying wasn't going to happen. The resurrection day. The day on which all who belong to Jesus, all who are in Christ, will be made alive to live forever with him. That's our certain hope, Paul says, if we belong to Jesus, if we are in him. There's another alternative, of course. We could be in Adam, which of course is a terrible alternative. For in Adam, 
all die. And that's obvious, isn't it? Death is everywhere. The total odds of dying from any cause is one in one. Our natural state is to belong to Adam. We are born into Adam. We are born into Adam's family tree. But it's a birth that inevitably leads to death. But you know what? When someone believes the gospel, they are reborn into Christ. They are reborn into a new family tree. They are reborn into a new humanity. And it is a rebirth that leads to life everlasting. How do we know? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. And Paul says his resurrection is actually the first of many. Verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You walk into an orchard and on a tree you find the first ripened fruit. And you know that its presence guarantees the ripening of the rest. You know that when you return, you'll be able to find masses of ripened fruit. Jesus' resurrection is just like that. It's the first of many. Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all those who belong to him on that day when he comes. And what a day that's going to be. Paul's going to speak more about it in the second half of chapter 15. You need to come back. Same bat channel. But notice how he describes it in verse 24. Verse 24. Then the end will come when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus will return and as the conquering king, he will finally and fully put an end to all hostility, all opposition to the kingdom of God. Every opponent to Christ's rule, all those who now mock him and conspire against him and despise him, they'll all be done away with, consumed in his awful wrath. And even death itself will be conquered and obliterated. And of course, with the destruction of death, life has no further enemy. There is nothing that can hinder or oppose God's kingdom now or God's people. Paul says the times then will have reached their fulfillment when the son himself in perfect obedient submission will hand over the kingdom to God the father and everything then will be in submission to him so that as it said in verse 28 God may be all in all. How could we possibly grasp the greatness of that moment and yet we long for it don't we? We long for it. No more death. No more sin. No more groaning. Glory and righteousness and peace and life everlasting. God, the loving creator, all in all. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. That is our expectation. And there is nothing wavering about it. There is nothing uncertain about it. Why? 
because Christ is risen. And his resurrection is the guarantee of that glory to come. His resurrection is the guarantee of that joy to come. That will be forever. Come Lord Jesus. That's our cry. Because in the here and now, we wait. We wait in hope. For Christ is risen. And we know that we who are in him on that day will rise too. See, the Corinthians in saying that there was no resurrection of the dead were really saying that this life is all there is, which is a hopeless nonsense, according to the Apostle. Imagine that if this life were all there is. They were in a mess. They were in such a mess that in verse 29, Paul refers to even the Corinthians being baptized on behalf of dead people. Now, Paul's not endorsing what they were doing. That's important to understand. But he's simply pointing out that what they were doing makes no sense if there was no resurrection. Somehow it would seem that the Corinthians back there and then were trying to gain some spiritual benefit for those who had already died. But Paul says, that's a nonsense. You are looking for hope where there's none. If there is no resurrection of the dead, dead is dead. There's no hope. What are you doing? But if there is a resurrection of the dead, if Christ has been raised as the first fruits of the great harvest of resurrection, then Paul says our life, in fact, can be one rich in hope. And we see that in Paul himself. Verse 30, verse 30. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? See, it's because of the resurrection of Jesus that we can now endure for Jesus. It's not for human reasons that we persevere in the midst of trials and suffering. It's not for human reasons that we keep on keeping on in our Christian obedience. It's not for human reasons that we're here tonight working hard at the Bible. It's not for human reasons that tomorrow we'll be praying for an opportunity to speak of Jesus at work. It's not for human reasons that we keep turning away from that temptation that persists. It's not for human reasons that we give our money away with generosity. It's not for human reasons that we love one another and love those around us. It's because of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, which guarantees our resurrection. It's for the joy set before us. It's because Jesus has gone ahead of us as our pioneer, as, as our trailblazer. And just as he endured suffering and then entered glory, so will we, carried, drawn along in his slipstream. If the dead are not raised, it's all meaningless. The writer of Ecclesiastes was right. We should just eat, drink and be merry. But the dead are raised, thanks to Jesus and his resurrection. This life is not all that there is, Thanks to Jesus and his resurrection. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he rose. He rose as the first fruits. He rose as the guarantee that all those in him will also be made alive on that final day. He rose so that our life now might be a life of hope. A life lived with our vision dominated by that life to come. Don't know if you're much into calendars, 
But the great reformer Martin Luther said that the Christian only needs two days on his or her calendar. Just two days, which is much simpler. Just two days. This day and that day. This day and that resurrection day. They're the only two days we really need on our calendar. Because that final day is coming, this day can be lived with hope and purpose. Brothers and sisters, that's the calendar we need to operate with. Let's live out this day and any other days that might follow in the light of that day, that day of resurrection. Why? Because Christ is risen.